All righty, Grace Church, Medina East Campus, 11 o'clock service. How you guys doing today? All right, I love you a lot. My name is Dan, and uh, I lead student ministries here at uh, Medina East. So uh, my wife and, and my team and I just have the awesome privilege of hanging out with uh, all the students from 6th uh, through 12th grade. We hang out uh, in a variety of different environments throughout the week. Uh, so if you uh, or somebody you know is in that range from 6th uh, through 12th, please come find me in the cafe after the service. I'd love uh, a chance to hear your story and to just share with you about what God is doing in student ministries. It's a pretty cool, it's a pretty cool time that we have there. So I'd love to talk with you about that. And like Steve said, if you're, if you're newer or if you're like a first-time guest, man, we are just so grateful that you would take time out of your schedule to come uh, hang out with us, check out uh, what we're all about. We just genuinely count it an honor and a privilege to, to have your time. So thank you. We hope you feel welcome, for real, because you genuinely are welcome here. We're glad that you're here. And we've been in a series uh, called You Are Here. And, and what we're talking about in this series is basically the idea that a lot of us are familiar with Bible stories. A lot of us probably in this room have been exposed to stories like uh, David and Goliath or Noah and the flood. You know, and we've, we've been familiarized with those stories and we're, we're aware that the Bible contains those. But maybe what we're a little bit less familiar with is the Bible story. The whole kind of meta-narrative of the Bible. And what we've said in the series is that the Bible is actually not just a, a collection of unrelated or disconnected stories, but that the Bible actually has one big major plot line, again, one meta-narrative, and there is actually one hero in the Bible. And so what we're looking at is the whole story from the first book of the Bible, Genesis, all the way to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation. And we're trying to see what is the story and, and who is the hero. And so what we've done is we've created a little bit of a, a kind of a roadmap for this whole conversation. And what we've said is uh, there are these different mile markers, starting with God creates and that we rebel, but God promises. And then we wander, but God builds, we destroy, then the Father sends, the Son rescues, the Spirit indwells, and then God reigns. And what we've said and what we're trying to do is to really equip you to know this story and to live this story and to give this story away, to kind of orient your life to the reality that this is actually true. And this is a really important deal. And to kind of find where you're at in the story and to say, man, you are here or we are here in this moment. We're actually living in what is the story. It's still going on. And not only to orient ourselves to it, but also to be able to give it away, to, to articulate the story to others. That's why we tried to make it as clear as we could and to give you just kind of the, uh, a quick kind of bullet points about what is happening in the Bible. All right, and so if you've missed any part of this uh, conversation, you can find uh, the, the previous conversations on our website or on our podcast. But what we're going to be getting into today is this idea that we wander. We wander. And I'll tell you guys what, I'm just going to lay it all out on the, on the table for you. I'm actually really super excited about our conversation today because I've been preparing a lot. I've actually been reading the Bible a ton for the past couple weeks. And, and what I've come to discover, I guess I kind of forgot this, and what I've come to discover afresh in a really new and vibrant way is that the Bible is actually really awesome. The Bible is totally awesome. And there is so much uh, in the Bible that, that has the capacity to change your life. And, you know, I, like, I work at a church. I'm like a church guy, you know. And I so often forget the gift and the power and the beauty of the Bible. So that's this first thing. That's kind of just an aside. But I'm here to tell you that the Bible is awesome. 
And so we're going to be uh, in Exodus chapter 1. If you have your Bible, if you want to go ahead and bust it open uh, and get to Exodus 1. If you want to get your device out or whatever, however you want to get there. Even if you didn't bring a Bible, we actually provide some for you in the chairs uh, underneath you. And so you can find Exodus chapter 1 uh, on page 39. And we also say every week, if you don't own a Bible, like just straight up don't own a copy of God's word, we want you to just take that black Bible and make it a gift from us to you. We think it is super duper important that you have a copy of God's word, so write your name in it. It's yours. The Bible is awesome. And so basically where we're at in the story is that God has created, God creates, but then we rebel. Humanity has done this incredible rebellion and we've turned away from God. And so God comes in and he makes a promise with this guy Abraham. We talked about that last week. And God promises to bless Abraham and to bless his family, for his family to flourish. And that ultimately God wants to bless the entire world through the family of Abraham. And so in Exodus, we see that starting to occur. We see the nation of Israel, which are the descendants of Abraham, they start to grow and to flourish. And we see, picking up uh, in verse 7, that the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. And they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And so Israel, this, this God's chosen nation, his people, Israel is healthy and fruitful, and the land is filled with them. And we see that the land, we're, we're going to learn that the land here that, that is being referred to is actually Egypt. Uh, Israel was promised what's called the promised land, but they wind up spending about 400 years in Egypt. And even though this starts on kind of a positive note, that e Israel was exceedingly fruitful and that they had been multiplying greatly and increasing in, in numbers, there's actually a little bit of a downside to this. In fact, we find out that the leader of Egypt, this guy whose title is Pharaoh, is actually not too stoked about the reality that Israel is growing in the way that they are. In fact, we discover that Pharaoh is the worst human character in the Bible up to this, po up to this point uh, in the story. He's a terrible guy. In fact, we see that, that, uh, that uh, they made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked the Israelites ruthlessly. And so Pharaoh and his crew, and they beat the Israelites and they impose cruel working conditions on him. And it becomes a very uh, incredibly a challenging situation for, for God's people, Israel. In fact, Pharaoh is so freaked out that he, he goes on to do something really, really terrible. And we see that uh, having a little bit of clicker trouble. Everybody say, a little bit of clicker trouble. That's all right, though. That feels loosey-goosey. I finally feel like I'm home. I get a little bit loosey-goosey upstairs with the students. And so we've all gotten there now together. We're all a family. Clicker trouble. Oh, now is it nothing? Holy moly. There we go. It's all right. We'll go loose. We'll go loosey-goosey. Here we go. Okay, now I feel good. All right, so this is how, this is how terrible Pharaoh is. Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. He said, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. And so we see that Pharaoh, in this situation, is an enslaving, genocidal maniac. This isn't just some cute story where it's like some kind of Disney character that's kind of bad, like whatever. Like, oh, the kind of bad guy. This guy is like completely insane and terrifying, an enslaving, genocidal maniac. This is something that happens historically. And so Israel's situation, the real and true nation of Israel is in Egypt in slavery and in bondage. And Pharaoh says, kill every boy, <laughs> throw him in the Nile. And so it is into this context that is bleak and terrifying and awful that God actually raises a prophet and a leader, someone to liberate his people. And so God raises a guy whose name 
is Moses. Moses is born in Egypt as an Israelite slave. And instead of being, this is so amazing, instead of being thrown into the Nile to die, to, die, to drown, he's actually placed in the Nile in a basket and he's found by Pharaoh's daughter. It's an incredible uh, plot twist. And again, the Bible is awesome. It's an amazing story, but he's found by Pharaoh's daughter and, and incredibly, uh, he survives, he survives. And so what goes on to happen is that Moses' life is spared and he, he grows up and eventually winds up meeting God on a mountain. He meets God on the mountain that is called Mount Sinai and, and he, he starts to interact with him. And this is the famous story of Moses and the burning bush. And so we pick it up uh, in chapter three, verse two. It says, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him, appeared to Moses on this mountain in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that Though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see the strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And what happens is that a very special relationship becomes established between Moses and God. And they have extended dialogue with each other. They interact. And God eventually says, you know what, Moses? I have seen the oppression of my people. I have seen the misery and the suffering of my beloved Israel. And I'm not going to just allow that to keep happening. I'm going to do something about that. I've seen the misery. And actually, Moses, you and I, we're going to do something about that. And so God goes on. Uh, there we go. So God goes on to say, so now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And so what we see is this is an incredibly overwhelming and intimidating task God is calling Moses to something far beyond what he can even imagine. And I think what we see in this interaction right here, he says, go, get my people out of Egypt. And Moses is like, who am I, man? I can't, I don't have that in me. I can't do it. What we start to see is that this reveals something about God, and it ultimately, it reveals something about us. And I think what we're going to discover in this uh, conversation is that ultimately God can do infinitely more than we can ask or that we can imagine. We're gonna see that God's paradigm and his capacity and his understanding and his will so far goes beyond what we can even imagine. And we're often inclined to deviate and to wander from that brilliance and to say, man, I can't, I can't, dig, I can't dig it. I can't, I can't get to that place. And so what we're gonna see is throughout the Bible, throughout the whole story from the very beginning to the end, we're gonna see that the God who creates and that the God who promises is ultimately the God who can even shatter our very categories about what is possible. He, he, he is so far beyond what we can imagine. God can do infinitely more than we can ask or that we can imagine. And so, there we go, a little clicker action, that's good. So God said, go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses says to God, who am I? God is very clear and direct about what's gonna happen. But we see that this is too amazing for Moses to even understand. He's like, how could I possibly do this? And so Moses responds, and he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God is clear and direct, but Moses isn't sure. He's like, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can handle it, man. And so something starts to happen in the relationship between God and Moses, which is really interesting. We see that Moses actually starts to debate with God. And so in uh, chapter 4, we see Moses answer, well, what if they don't believe me, God? God clearly says, you're going to go and you're going to set my people free. I don't want them to suffer. You're going to go. Moses says, well, what if they don't believe me? Or, or what if they listen to me and say, the Lord didn't appear to you? And God responds and he says, hey, man, I'm going I'm to supply what you need. I'm going to get you what you need. We're going to get there. It's okay. I've got it on lockdown. No problem. But eventually Moses says, pardon your servant, Lord, but please send someone else. 
I don't have the capacity in myself to do this thing. And man, I don't know. I don't know if you have what it takes. And so again, our mile marker today, the thing that we're talking about is the idea that we wander, that we wander. And I think we actually see a little bit of a hint of this idea of wandering even here in the relationship between God and Moses. I think we see that wandering is more than just physically wandering around aimlessly or being, or being literally physically lost. I think wandering, as we're going to see in the story, is actually an inclination to deviate from the reality of who God is, from what he promises, and, and to deviate and to wander and to question in our hearts the beauty and the power of God. And so that's what we're going to see in the fact that we wander, we wander. All right. And so the thing is, I think we're going to see this in Moses, we're going to see this in Israel. But the thing is, I think we actually all, to a certain extent, have an inner a compulsion to wander, to question God, and to go our own way. And we hear, we'll be presented with what God says or what God teaches, or we'll be, we'll be kind of confronted even internally in our own hearts and our minds with what we know is right in terms of what God thinks. And we'll say to ourselves, man, that's just too far out. I don't think I can go there. You don't really actually believe that I'm going to follow you all the way to that place. That's just too much. Go, like Moses is saying, you want me to go to Pharaoh and talk to this uh, evil genocidal maniac and tell him what to do? There's no way. And I think we do the same thing. We think sometimes when we're confronted with what God says, man, that's too far out. That's too wild. I can't, I can't go to that place. I can't do that thing. And so even for me, uh, to try to just be vulnerable with you guys here today, you know, I, as somebody who is, tr I'm trying to follow Jesus and I'm pr trying to be legit, but the Bible teaches things, God through his word teaches things like this, love your enemies, love your enemies. And I'll tell you, that's a real big challenge for me because I'm somebody who's kind of arrogant and judgmental and self-righteous and I'm trying to get, I'm trying to grow and to get better. But man, if somebody really hurts me or, or does something that I feel to be really antagonistic or wrong, it is really hard for me to, to put my faith in God and to trust that he's going to supply what I need and to go to that place. And I, I kind of feel like Moses sometimes, like, man, go do this thing that is, there's no way you could think you could do it in your own power. Go love your enemies. Pray for those who hurt you and bless those who curse you. And I think to myself, there's no way I can't do that. And so what happens, what I'm inclined to do is to wander, to, 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 to lose trust and to lose faith in God and to just do my own thing and to try and navigate it on my own. I wander. But I think, again, that's, that's all of us in this room. And I know there's probably a lot of people in here at, at a different spot with Jesus trying to figure out where you're at. But probably some of you are even trying to figure out whether or not you believe that, you know, God exists. But whatever the area is, wherever you're at, you're kind of in a state where you're like, I don't know if I'm gonna give all of this over to you or follow you completely. And so maybe for you in this room, You've been presented with what the Bible teaches about sexuality. And you're like, dude, it is 2019. There is no way that I can go there. Are you serious right now? That's this, the Bible is antiquated. Its teachings are regressive. There's no way I'm going to do with my body what the Bible says to do. Or maybe for you, you know, God is confronting you about a certain habit or maybe an addiction. And you're like, no, I depend on this thing. Don't you understand? It's been the majority of my life I've relied on this thing to get me through. And God is saying, hey, we're in a new season right now, and I want you to go and to let go of that thing, to go to that Pharaoh and to, and to relinquish this control uh, to me in your life. And you're like, there's no way. I can't do that. It's too far out, God. I, I can't. Who am I? I can't do that thing. Or maybe even for you, as we're entering the holiday season, God, God is calling you to share your faith with a family member or, or with a, a loved one or something, maybe somebody you haven't seen for a while. You know, and, and he's moving on your heart and he's, and he's confronting you with this reality. Man, you need to go and open your mouth and share what I have done in your life. Go, 
and, and share the liberating message that I have, that I have shown forth in your life. And you're like, that's too far out, man. I can't do that. Who am I? I don't have the words to say. I don't trust that I can do that. And so we wander. We wander. I think we all do it. We all have our inclination. And so what I would like to ask us to do, even me, I'm still, I'm honestly still trying to wrestle through this, even in my own heart and in my own life. I'd like to ask us to press in. You're already here. You're in church. We're going to be here for like 30 more minutes, so might as well just buckle in and really go for it. And ask God to reveal, man, what are the ways in which I wander? How do I, what do I struggle with? What am I, in what ways do I deviate and try to do my own thing and reject your authority and do my own thing? And I would ask that you just try to humble your heart and ask God, please speak to me. Reveal the ways in which I wander. Ask him to speak to you, and he will. He wants to meet you right here. God is here. You are here. And the story is now, and God wants to speak to you. So please, I'm begging you to open up your hearts and to listen to what he says in his word. All right. So anyway, back to the story. Eventually, God, he convinces Moses to go. God normally wins the debate, and this is an example where that occurs. And God's like, no, nope, this is how it's going to go. So Moses uh, gets his brother Aaron, and they wind up making it to Pharaoh. They get into the presence of Pharaoh, and they say to him, hey, Pharaoh, God says, let my people go, right, straight up. And what Pharaoh does is he responds to that by not being very impressed. He's just like, whatever, what guy, I don't care. No, nah, not going to happen. And so God goes on to increasingly intensify the reality that this is true and that this needs to occur. And all the while, Pharaoh is hardening his heart, and he's rejecting God's power. And so God sends these plagues. Again, another very famous story, God sends uh, plagues on Israel. And so God turns the river Nile into blood, and Pharaoh's like, not impressed, no big deal. And then God sends frogs, and God sends boils, and God sends hail. He protects Israel, but he sends these plagues on Egypt. And the whole time, Pharaoh's like, not going to happen, not going to happen. But then finally... God says, okay, I'm going to do something that Pharaoh can no longer hold back on, and he's going to let you guys go. And so God sends the 10th plague. And the 10th plague is that God will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn. God says, I'm going to strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I'll bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord, and the blood will be a sign for you that the house where you are and, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And what's really fascinating and really beautiful is that this blood that is referred to here is, uh, is actually a, a representative of what's going to happen uh, in, in, the, in the blood that God commands the Israelites to, to sacrifice uh, a lamb and to cover over their door frames with blood so that when God sees that, he'll pass over. God says, I want to see the blood of a spotless lamb spread over you or covered over you. And as a result of seeing that, I will pass over. And what we see in this story, again, this is a very famous story, but it points to something greater, into the grander meta narrative, into the grander story. And we see that in the Bible and in God's relationship with people, this is a beautiful and important picture. We see that in the story, God's people are covered over by blood. And that blood is very significant. And that God's people are not subject to the plague that haunts us, the plague of death. We are covered over and protected. We are protected by the blood. And the lamb's death, we see in the story that the lamb's death equals the life of God's people. God's people that trust in the, in the power of the blood. And that's going to play an extremely important part in the story as it goes on. But we see that Pharaoh doesn't dig that. 
He rejects God and ultimately all the firstborn of Egypt, they perish. And it's, again, a very terrifying and serious scene in the Bible. And again, the Bible isn't just, there are scenes or sections, big sections of the Bible that aren't just some cutesy little, oh, whatever, like just be a good person or something. There is blood and there is guts and it is a serious encounter. And so God destroys all the firstborn of Egypt and Pharaoh finally relents and allows the Israelites uh, to, to, to be free. And so this grand exodus occurs. Pharaoh lets them go. The people escape. But Pharaoh's heart and his mind are so hard and so bitter that he quickly changes his mind. Even though this incredible tragedy has occurred, Pharaoh changes his mind. And he starts to pursue the Israelites, to pursue them, even after all that he's seen that God is capable of doing. And so eventually the Israelites camp by the Red Sea. And we pick it up uh, in chapter 14. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. And there were the Egyptians marching after them. They had just, the, the Israelites had just been set free, but now they see the Egyptians coming after them. And they were terrified. The Israelites were like, oh my gosh, no way, this is, this is a pretty big bummer. And, cry, and they cry out to the Lord. And they say to, Moses, was it, they say to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? And again, God had just passed over he had just exerted an incredible supernatural power in the, in the lives of his people. He had liberated them from 400 years of slavery and in bondage. And here they are by the shore of the Red Sea, questioning and deviating and, and wandering in their hearts. They're, they're questioning the reality of who God is and his power. And so they go on to say, what have you done to us? By bringing us out of Egypt. Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And I think what we hear the Israelites really saying is, man, God isn't going to come through. God, is, this is too far out. We don't trust God's goodness. We don't trust his power. He can't do it. This is too far out. This is too crazy. I can't, I can't fully turn my heart and my life over to him. It's too much. Like we told you, leave us alone, Right? They don't trust. And, and Moses responds by saying, uh, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. So again, even in the midst of questioning and complaining, and even as God's people are deviating from the reality of his power, and the reality of the things that he has done, they are wandering in their hearts. They're inclined to wander. And so Moses, Moses says to the Israelites, no, you have to be completely aware of God's power and what he is capable of doing. And he says, man, God will take care of you. You will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. God isn't messing around. He will take care of us. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. You need only to be still. And so I think what Moses is saying, and I think what is so important and what is so true, and what we all often, myself so totally included, what we all so often wander from is the reality that God can do infinitely more than we can ask or that we can imagine. He says, the Lord will fight for you. Be still. Do not be afraid. It's going to be okay. And so this is an epic moment for Israel. This is like one of the highlights, I mean, one of the total mountaintop moments of, of the Bible. They're stranded by the sea, uh, the, the, the shore of the Red Sea. They're standing there, and the Egyptians are bearing down on them. And unless God does something incredible, 
they're, they're out of luck, right? And we see that God shows up in one of the most incredibly miraculous ways ever. We see that God moves and he actually parts the Red Sea. And we see that God makes it so that there are walls of water on either side and dry ground right in, in between that the Israelites are allowed to go between there. And what we see ultimately is that Charlton Heston shows up and he sees these walls of water, he looks through them and he sees a fish this big. You guys know I've been waiting 24 minutes to make that joke. I just love him. I can't wait to watch this movie later. Anyway, so God, see, God does this incredible thing. He parts the Red Sea and, and, and you know, it, it's all happening. And what I want you guys to know is that honestly, God can do infinitely more than we can ask or we can imagine. And Israelites, they, they, they pass through on dry ground. They literally pass through on dry ground. And they enter, what you need to hear is that they enter new life. They enter a new life. They leave slavery and bondage behind them. They leave death behind them. And they pass through the waters into new life. And they are, they are set free by the power of God. And again, the Egyptians, man, they, they pursue. Death is trying to get at them. But God works in his way, in the way that he does, and they get stuck. Their chariots kind of mess up, and God crashes the water back down on these representatives of death and slavery. And God sets the Israelites free. It is an incredible story. The Bible is awesome. It's amazing. And, and as the story goes on, man, again, in spite of all the supernatural ways that God has, has moved in the lives of the Israelites, and in spite of all the profound examples of his uh, control of nature and of his desire to bless them and to take care of them, Israel continues to wander, to complain, and to do their own thing. This is just something that continues to happen. And so eventually, again, their hearts are just, there, there are areas of their hearts that just won't give in and won't, and won't surrender to the reality of who God is. And finally, they get back to the mountain, to the mountain where God met Moses, Mount Sinai, where he, God had promised that he was going to bring Moses and his people back. God just shows this incredible faithfulness. And at the mountain, God establishes for a year, he establishes deeper and deeper relationship with the Israelites. He gives instruction about how to interact with them. He communicates his love by making his commands very clear and giving them clear instructions about how to relate with him. This is an incredible blessing, and it's, and it's unique in the ancient Near East. No other relationship between a God, God and people existed other than this, this way where God says, this is what I want, this is how I want you to live, these are the reasons why. He's very clear, and it's beautiful. And so eventually, after a year, the Israelites depart from the promised land. They, they, they depart from Mount Sinai to the promised land, and the whole time, the whole time, God is leading them, and he has a desire for them to, to flourish and to get to the promised land. The whole time, they're wandering. They're wandering in their hearts and their minds. They're deviating from the reality of who God is. And so eventually, God, in his wisdom and in his love and ultimately in his judgment and in his clarity, he allows the internal wandering that is occurring in the hearts and the minds of the Israelites. He allows that internal wandering to manifest itself into a literal, physical wandering in the desert for 40 years. God says, okay, I will, I will honor your choice to wander and to deviate from me. And so they wander and they question and they complain in the wilderness for 40 years in the desert. And then finally, finally, after years and years of wandering both physically and wandering and deviating from the reality that God is good, and, and turning away from him, finally, he brings them, after 40 years, right up 
uh, to the promised land. But before they enter the promised land, Moses actually gathers everybody together and he kind of recounts their whole experience. He, he tells them what, what it's been about. And what he says is, listen, guys, remember, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. And the number 40 here is very, very significant. 40 actually indicates a period of testing or a period of trial. Oftentimes the number 40 uh, occurs when something is being clarified in the hearts of uh, God's people or, or, or something very clear is happening about God's uh, trying to communicate his, his love or his presence. And so this is what God does. Moses says, God led us in the wilderness for these 40 years. For what reason? He says to humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart. And what we see is that God isn't just trying to be bossy. He's not just trying to be some kind of a bummer, but God ultimately knows what is best. He, he's the creator and he knows what is best and he wants his people to live. God has such a profound desire to clearly communicate what is necessary to live that he allows his people to wander, to teach them, to humble them, and to clarify what is in their heart. God wants his people to live. He wants trust. He wants obedience. He wants faith. And Moses continues. He says, he humbled you causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so manna is a perfect example of this incredible supernatural provision that God bestows on his people every day for 40 years. He says, you need to recognize that you get hungry, but man, I'm gonna be here and I'm gonna provide for you. I care about you and I am actively present and I am preparing what you need in order to be sustained. He says, I've given you manna, which nobody knew, but I, I gave it to you. And we see that in, in God's relationship with Israel and ultimately in God's relationship with, with us and with you and with me, his desire is to teach us, to teach us what is true and to teach us what ultimately leads to flourishing to teach us that his paradigm is not our paradigm, that his thoughts are not our thoughts, and that when he teaches something or when he says something, he's not just being random or arbitrary, but that it means something and we need to embrace and to accept it. And how he communicates that here is by saying, he was trying to teach you that man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And I think when we hear that, again, or things like that in the Bible, we're like, that's just too far out, man. Man doesn't live on bread alone. I'm hungry, I'm going to starve. Are you serious? I can't, this doesn't compute with me. It doesn't make sense. And it's outside of our categories. Man does not live on bread alone. Or again, like humble yourself and serve somebody even if it doesn't feel good for you. We hear that statement and we're like, that doesn't compute with me. We hear love your enemies. And we're like, I don't, that doesn't make sense. In the same way that hearing man doesn't live on bread alone, it's just outside of our categories. And I think God communicates that because he's trying to say, you need to trust me and to follow me. I will sustain you, but you need to recognize that there is something beyond bread that sustains you. And there's something beyond uh, acting in accordance just with your paradigm rather than mine that is going to sustain you. You need to trust me. And so our inclination is to deviate. And our inclination is to complain and to wander and to do our own thing. But what I find interesting, even with this statement, is that actually this isn't the only place in the Bible where this statement occurs. In fact, there is another uh, wilderness in which this statement occurs. There's another testing. And the number 40 is reintroduced as well in the New Testament. And we see that in Matthew 4, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he, 
that is Jesus, was hungry. And the tempter came to him and he said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we see that this tempter has actually been in the story before. In fact, all the way back in Genesis 3, this is Satan. And Satan and his mode of operation is to tempt people to wander and to deviate from the reality of God's power and his love and his goodness and his authority. And so he tempts Jesus and he says, why don't you turn these stones into bread? In other words, why don't you assert your divine authority in a way that you're not supposed to right now? Live outside of God's will for your life. Wander and deviate from him. And we see that when Jesus is tempted to wander, this is what he says. He quotes back to, to Deuteronomy. It's written, man, this is not, it's not about my paradigm. It's about the paradigm of God. And man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so where Jesus is tempted to wander, he acts faithfully. And where Israel fails and where we fail and where I fail, Jesus succeeds. We wander. We wander. But Jesus does not wander. Jesus does not wander. And people who follow Christ are called to recognize, to recognize and to admit that, that man, our inclination is to deviate from the things of God, to, to hear what he says, to hear his commands, to, to hear his, his desire for our lives, and to say, that's too much, man, I can't, I, to, to, to say, even though that's too much, I, I want to trust you, and to, I, want, I want to obey, to recognize our inclination to deviate, and then to trust and to obey God, even in the testing. And the thing is, it's not because we can do it on our own. What you need to understand that what Christians are is not a group of people who are just really good at being good. Christians are not a group of people who just like know the moral checklist and do it. We're a group of people who recognize we are inclined to wander, just like the Israelites. But we also recognize that what Jesus has done is provided us uh, an example to follow. He's given us the power. He's given us the resources. And to the degree that we submit our, our lives to his, uh, his authority, Man, he can lead us out and he can help us to wander less. We're always inclined to, but man, we are free to follow Jesus. We're, free, we're totally free to follow Jesus. I love what it says in uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And the thing is, this is only possible by the power of Jesus. By the power of Jesus, we are set free. We are foreigners and exiles because of the fact that he has set us free. And we're free to abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against our soul. We're free to trust and to obey God. And we're freed, again, we're freed from the slavery to sin. We have been liberated by the power of Jesus. And we are to follow him and allow his, the resources of his love and his truth to inform the way that we interact. And so in the big story of the Bible, again, all the way from the very beginning to the very end, man, there is this thread. These different little stories tell one big major story. And we see that even the thread that starts when we looked at the idea of what happened with Israel, that that corresponds to what happens with Jesus. And that ultimately it leads to what happens in Christian life. That the stories individually are interesting, but they reveal the story and again, you are here. This isn't a fairy tale. And this isn't just some moralistic, therapeutic way to try to like figure out how to be a better person or something, right? It's the truth. You are here. And for example, if you take the Passover, like we talked about a little bit, we'll see that there is a thread. There's a thread that goes through these things. So for example, with Israel, man, Israel was freed 
from Egyptian slavery because of the blood of the lamb. That actually occurs in Exodus 12. It's something that happens historically, and it literally happened. But we see that in Jesus, man, it's an even greater fulfillment. And we see that Jesus is the perfect lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, and he says, Behold, that's the lamb. That's the real lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And it's not just a cute story in Exodus 12, man. That points to the reality that we need to be liberated and that we need, our sin needs to be passed over. And what causes death and corruption and tyranny needs to be covered over by the blood. And that ultimately Christians are people who are freed from the slavery of sin because of the sacrifice of Jesus, man. It all connects. There is one story in the hero is Jesus. And when we look at the idea of, uh, of the waters being delivered through the waters, we see that Israel entered into new life after passing through the waters of the Red Sea. And the Egyptian way of life, that representation of death and slavery was buried in the waters. That God covers over everything that uh, applies to death and suffering and ultimately and eternally he liberates us into freedom. And we see that Jesus is the perfect manifest example of that. Jesus, where Israel has failed, Jesus stays faithful. And he is the perfect representation of Israel. And so he meets John the Baptist and he says, I need to be baptized as well. John the Baptist says, nah, man, like, you're, you're, we're cool. I should be baptized by you. But Jesus says, no, let it be so now to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is the perfect example of the obedient and faithful Israelite. And so Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. And ultimately, as that leads to Christian life, man, Christians are those who are freed. Freed from sin. And they're able to be baptized, leaving their old way of life in the waters and emerging into the new life of Christ. And those of us that follow Jesus, what we're saying is that we identify with Jesus and with his death and with his burial and ultimately with his resurrection. And that as we get baptized, that's a representation of our kind of aligning with him and identifying with him. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. And in the symbol of baptism, I'm, I'm representing the fact that I have gone down into the grave. My old self the old self that was in bondage and slavery has gone down into the waters, but I've passed through them and I've come out just like Jesus came out of the grave and I am resurrected with him. Those who are freed from sin are to be baptized, leaving their old way of life in the waters, emerging into the new life of Christ. And then ultimately, like we talked about in the wilderness testing, we see that Israel was tested for 40 years, but they failed miserably. We wander, we wander, we wander. But the Jesus, as the perfect, again, the perfect lamb, as the perfect, uh, holy, and righteous, uh, and obedient one, is tested for 40 days in the wilderness, but he succeeds perfectly. And that ultimately, for Christians, man, we are called foreigners and exiles in this world, that our lives are to be uh, exemplified by recognizing, man, we are people who have been set free. We are people who have been set free. Even though we wander, we are set free by the power of God, and we can embrace him. We can embrace this whole story from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And so you might be like, okay, that's a cute graph. I'm grateful that you've shown me this graph, but so what, right? What does that have to do with anything? And what I want to let you guys know and to just really just, just um, plead with you is to consider that whether you are investigating Jesus, 
or whether you're following him, if you're new to church or if you've been coming around for a while, if you're new to the Bible, wherever you're at, wherever you're at, I want you to know that this story is true. And that this isn't just, again, I'll say it again and again, this isn't just some little fable or cute thing that we, like, that we use to like make kids not do bad stuff. That it is ultimately true and that it is real and that the story is true. You are here. You are here and the story is true. The story is true. And here's what I want you to know. In, in, in the absolute truest and most uh, sincere way that I can tell you, there is a God. There is a God and he loves you. There is a God. And he loves you. And these stories that we see, they point to the story. And the story, what the universe is screaming and what you need to hear is that God is love. And, and God is love. And, and the thing is, all of us have sinned. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We turn, we wander. All of us wander, we wander. And the wages of sin is death and separation from God. That's not just some manipulative thing. That is the truth. That is the Bible truth. God is love. All have sinned. But ultimately, please listen to me. These words are important. Jesus saves. God is love. All have sinned. Jesus saves. And God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That whoever believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And though we wander, and though we are faithless, Jesus is faithful, and he is true. And God can do infinitely more. God can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Even though we are in bondage and in slavery and prone to wander, God can do infinitely more than we can ask or we can imagine. And so how you respond to this story in light of even your current wanderings, whatever you're wrestling through or questioning or trying to figure out, how you respond to this story ultimately is not the difference between whether or not you get the right check mark on a I believe some fairy tale test. The difference between believing and following the story and not is ultimately the difference between life and death. And so how you respond, it's a big deal, man. And God wants your life. He wants your flourishing. He cares about you. God loves you. And it's a big deal. It's a huge deal. So I'm going to invite the band to come on up at this time and rock us out. Uh, and as they're getting settled in, I just want to let you guys know, I want to leave you with this, that right after Israel's wandering, right, at the kind of tail end of their wandering, they're camped outside the promised land. They're right, there's, there's just a river separating them from the promised land. And Moses gathers everybody together and he addresses them. He addresses the whole nation of Israel. And what he says, I think, is extremely poignant and it's important. And I think it's a word that you need to hear today. And I think it's a word that God wants you to hear and he wants you to embrace. And so, uh, you know, Moses, he basically pleads, he pleads with Israel to listen and to heed what he has to say. And so I would be remiss if I didn't do the same thing, to just plead with you, please, listen to the words of Moses. And ultimately, the words of God, he wants you to know that this isn't just a cute option. It's the difference between life and death. Please, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you, I'm pleading with you. Embrace the story. Wherever you're at in your wandering, Jesus is faithful. He loves you. He wants you to be a part of his story. And so I'll leave you with this. In Deuteronomy 30, Deuteronomy 30 says this. This day, today, and maybe you can make it this day for you, whatever. January, whatever, whatever month it is. December. Is it December? December 1st. This day. 
This day I call the heavens and the earth, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death. I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now, I'm pleading with you, choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him for the Lord is your life. The Lord is your life. Please choose life. The Lord is your life. And he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the story, in the story, you are being presented life and death. God wants you to choose life. Please choose life. The Lord is your life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Please embrace him. Let's pray. Yeah, Father, thank you for being faithful. And even though we wander, Lord Jesus, you are faithful and you stay true and you stay, uh, you stay perfect. And I thank you so much for that, Father. I thank you for the story that you reveal to us in all the different ways and all the different interesting, memorable stories that really happen, man. Your, your faithfulness time and time and time again, no matter how much we wander, you stay faithful. I thank you for that, Father. And I thank you that you stayed faithful even, even to the point of death on a cross. And that you surveyed the world and you said, you know what, I love them. And even though they wander, I love them. And I'm willing to go to the cross to bring them into my faithfulness. And that you freely offer the gift of, uh, of a relationship with God and a renewed, restored life. God, please, I'm begging you by the power of your spirit in this moment to reveal the impact and the importance of that truth to the people in this room. For, those, for, for the people in this room that are, that are, that are questioning or, or confused, God, I ask that you bring them clarity beyond what any human could say to them, Father, but by your spirit, only in what you can say to them personally and individually. Please speak to the people in this room. Help them to recognize the ways in which they wander and, and, and the ways in which you are calling them into to faith and to following you. And we thank you that ultimately, Lord Jesus, it is not by our power or by our goodness, but it is by your power and your goodness and your faithfulness that we can call you uh, our Lord and our Savior. Thank you for saving us. That it's not, about our, it's not about our goodness and it's not about our perfection. It's about your goodness and your perfection. Thank you for your grace. And we ask that in this time of praise and worship that we genuinely, legit praise you and sing out to who you are. The fact that though we wander, you are faithful. And we praise you for the resurrection and that you are the king of the universe. We praise you, Lord Jesus. You're the king. Amen.